Just one note in the bulletin, it says verses 1 through 8, that ought to be 1 through 12. I'll read from those verses and preach from there. Then Samuel died. And the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you are uh, that you have shears. Your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come to a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each from his own master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are, where they come from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back. And they came and told him, all these words. The parable of the rich fool appears in the New Testament. Jesus used it to teach the folly of, of loving money and to warn against the sin of covetousness. In this case, the Old Testament tells not a parable, but it tells about a real man, a rich man, a man who loved money above all else. Ironically, his name was Nabal, which when translated is literally the fool. And so this is the parable of the rich fool. I wonder why his parents named him fool. Maybe, maybe the kids today, you can ask, ask your parents, why did you name me what you named me? And it might be an opportunity for you to wonder why Nabal's parents named him fool. 
maybe it was because he acted in a silly way and it, it made him laugh. And, and they said, oh, he's so silly. And so, and that name kind of stuck. He's such a fool. Maybe they were remembering, uh, maybe they were remembering the comical uncle who always made them laugh and was pulling pranks. And so they named him after, after their funny uncle, Nabal. Unfortunately, though, I don't think it's that. Because in the Bible, the word fool means something more than just being kind of a, a silly person. When the Bible talks about a fool, it's talking about someone who has acted in a way that is hazardously foolish, dangerously foolish, because they have rejected God. Their lives are chasing after other things rather than coming under the righteous and gracious rule of a holy God. Because of that, they are dangerously fools. And Nabal was this type of fool, a rich man who loved his money above all else. And in the flow of history, what we have is one more contrast between David and a wicked man. We've seen this already as there's a contrast between David and Saul. And that pattern continues now because in this case, the author shows us the way of the righteous in David contrasted with the way of the wicked in Nabal. Way of unbelief and the way of a fool. So today, learn the lesson, the parable of the rich fool. The lesson of the fool and his money, the danger of covetousness that prompts us to repent of it and to turn our lives over to the Lord. We begin, as verse 1 does, with the death of Samuel. It's a very understated description of the death of a very important, influential character in this whole book. It's titled First Samuel, by the way, right? So it calls to mind and gives us an opportunity to see that there's a transition taking place from the days of the judges, Samuel being the last, to the days of the king, Saul, who was the first, and unfortunately a foolish choice by the children of Israel. But more importantly, a day of transition towards the God or the, the king that God had in mind, who is David, the son of Jesse. Through Samuel, God had given a type of king that he intended. He gave them Dan, David, who was a foreshadowing of the Messianic king, Jesus Christ. And the book of Samuel then traces Samuel's life in a way that leads us to David. Now, Samuel plays a role in preparing the nation for the king and the king for the nation. And that's what's happening. 
But Samuel died. And all Israel gathered together to mourn him, and he was buried. The time of the judges was over, and the time of the kings had come. Like John the Baptist in the New Testament, having prepared the way, Samuel says, I must recede, and the one who follows after me must increase. And that one who comes after Samuel is the King David. Again, foreshadowing the coming of Jesus Christ. While the nation mourned Samuel's death, David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. It just shows the conflict that was still there in the life of Israel because the current King Saul, though he had repented, was still opposed to David. So David wasn't even safe to go to the funeral of this important godly leader in Israel. He still had to hide. And so he goes further south into the wilderness. There David encountered Nabal. And Nabal was a rich man. Nabal was a very rich man. That's what the text says, and it even describes his riches. It's hard for us to understand the currency of 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Can you imagine milking that many? (laughs) No? (laughs) Some of you have done that. Nabal was very rich. The, The currency of his days is an accounting of someone who is very prosperous, very influential. It describes he's a businessman in Carmel. That means that when he came to town, that the shopkeepers paid attention. Here's someone who is uh, is a mover and a shaker in the business world. And the Bible describes him as also descending in the tribe of Judah from the family of Caleb, just another influential individual. Caleb was one of the spies. He was a leader in Israel, and descending from him, there's a certain sense of influence that comes from that that name of Caleb. He was married to Abigail, a woman of good understanding and beautiful in appearance, and we'll come more to Abigail in the future. But Nabal was harsh and evil in his doings. And that is described in his interactions with David. We'll see some of those riches as we think about this explanation of the riches of Nabal and how he became really captured by the love of money. David had come into the region of Nabal's flocks along with his followers. And those followers were 600 soldiers and their families and all of that that uh, that went to those who were following David. And uh, just think about the management of that was necessary, the leadership that was necessary in that type of environment. Where does food come for a little city that's traveling around? Now, 
we need to remember that this is a, a day and age where nomadic living was was closer to them. They would have known how to live in tents, how to go from place to place following their flocks. So it wasn't so outlandish that they would have had their own sheep and goats to provide for them. But there are just some things that you have to have. And there's no Walmart open in the, in Carmel. <laughs> have to wait a few thousand years for the first Walmarts to come to Carmel. So where would they get some of those things? Well, they would barter, they would go and buy some of these things. But there is also an aspect of the ancient Mideastern culture that comes through in this story. Notice that David learned that Nabal was shearing his sheep. And so sent a delegation of young men to, to Nabal to, to ask for certain provisions. And this comes from a, a practice. It comes from the aspect of, of reaching a certain point in the, uh, in the pace of the year where the shearing of the sheep takes place. And often what would happen is that there would, there would be a, a lot of work might compare it to a harvest day uh, agriculturally with plants. With the sheep, that you get to the shearing day, and it's a, it's a big day. When you've got 4,000 head of animals, it's going to take a while to get through all of that. It's hard work. When you get done with that day of hard work, it's a time, it's a time to feast. It's a time to rejoice because you've gotten to, to another year. And there's a certain accounting that takes place. You can count how many sheep you now have and, and because you sheared them all. And you keep track of that. And in that feast, the bounty of that day is celebrated. Not only for the workers, but in that ancient culture, there was a sense of an overflow of bounty that was given to the needy in your in your circle of influence. There was a sharing that took place that acknowledged God has been good to me. God has been really good to me, and 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 I want to bless Him and thank Him for His goodness, and I want to bless those around me. That's a heart that that understands the goodness of God in the midst of bounty. Now, now isn't that a, a, a godly expression that understands where wealth comes from? That it comes from God. That all that we have comes from God. And in times of blessing and in times of prosperity and in times of need, all of those are under the hand of a God who's been good to us. And we are depending on him. And this day of shearing, this day of feasting, was an opportunity for David in the midst of, of this culture to share with one who had become something of a neighbor to him. David acknowledges this. 
when he sent his, his young men to Nabal, he describes how there had been something of a neighborly relationship that had taken place. David's men had, had uh, in a sense, mingled with the shepherds. And in that mingling, there was a certain protection that had taken place. And David calls attention to the difference of how they had lived as neighbors as opposed to what would often happen if there was an army that was moving through the countryside. That's really what it was. David's fighting men were with him. And all you need to do is to think of it in that care, in, in that context and realize that an invading army takes what it wants. That's what it does. It strips the land as it moves through. The Bible tells of that over and over again. Think of Midian when uh, the judges were trying to, or were, were, were serving and Midian invaded and were described like grasshoppers, partially because there were so many, but also because the, like grasshoppers, they stripped the land. And the people would, would harvest in secret. They would winnow their grain in secret. They would hide in caves, hoping to get away with their lives and a little food to eat. That wasn't David. David was a godly leader, and he trained his, his men. You don't take from these people. These are our neighbors. They're our family. They were all from Judah. We don't deal with them that way. So David's soldiers protected the shepherds of Nabal protected the flocks. You get a large force like that, there aren't going to be any raiders that come through and challenge 600 soldiers. And they didn't eat from Nabal's flocks. Those are Nabal's. They didn't eat from them. They didn't demand from them. They didn't steal from them. They protected them. And Nabal knew it. Because on shearing day, they could count. And they found that there weren't any lost. They even will tell later that they benefited from this relationship. The shepherds say that. But not Nabal. Not Nabal. David sent his men to say, peace be to you, peace to your house, peace to all that you have. And in recounting this history, uh, notice that uh, there wasn't a demand. He, he does ask for, for provision. This is not a protection racket where strong men come and threaten. Unless you give us something, we're going to take it. Your business will be destroyed. No, David came in need to a neighbor, a neighbor with whom he had dealt well and honestly. But 
Nabal was a fool. Nabal was a rich man, but he was also a fool. David came with a very gracious request, only to be met with rejection and worse from Nabal. Who is this David? Who is the son of Jesse? He obviously knew who he was. He named his dad. He probably knew his dad. He probably knew David. But who is this David? He was dismissing David and dishonoring him with kind of a scathing rejection. And he goes on and says, there are so many servants today who are rebelling against their master. And guess what? That's what you are. He had adopted Saul's line that David was the one who had rebelled. But then most telling, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give them to men that I don't know. Mine, 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 is what Nabal says. Mine, says the fool who loves money. Mine. Nabal ignored the practice of generosity. He made no effort to try to get to know the situation, which would have been easy for him to do. He heard the appeal and he declined it. He dismissed it. Case closed. Mind closed. Hand closed. Gripping his money. And so David went away empty-handed. I'll consider David's response next week. His is not too good either, but... That's to encourage you to come back and find out about David. We're dealing with Nabal, the rich fool, today. I want to pause and reflect on the lesson of the parable of the rich fool. That covetousness is sin, and it is insidious. That covetousness can work its way into your hearts in such a way that you become so attached to your money that it is the most important thing in your life. And you don't even know it. Really, you don't even know it. This is the case for Nabal. That this very rich and prosperous man had no place for generosity. And in doing so, he revealed what was most important in his life. And you see, it wasn't just that he wasn't generous to those who were in need around him, but he fell prey to the sin that turns us away from God himself. His sin was manifested in that he wasn't kind to those in need around him. It, it wasn't that it, just that he wasn't generous. He wasn't offending a, a public norm of a feast day and, and throwing, a, 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 a throwing the open his generosity to others. His sin was against God. 
because he was claiming all of those things as his rather than belonging to God. So the Bible is very clear in saying that money is not evil in and of itself. But it is equally clear, and maybe even more clear, about the warning of the love of money, the way that covetousness can turn your heart away from God. Remember that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Remember, it's not money itself that is the root. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Discontent with your lot in life. Covetousness for what others have. Greed, stealing, deceitful business practices and on and on. And to address this, Jesus told the parable that has come to be called the parable of the rich fool. A rich man thought that his wealth was the most important thing in the world. He had barns that were overflowing, and so he decided to build bigger barns. Reminds you of Nabal, doesn't it? A very rich man who had all that he needed, but clung so closely to that that he would not and could not show any kindness to his neighbor. His eyes were so focused on that that he had no apprehension of the God who had blessed him so generously. So what did the rich man do in the parable? What did Nabal do? Well, he set about to please himself above all else. In the parable, it says, the man says, my soul, you have, uh, you have many things. You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This night, your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And this is Nabal's foolishness. One commentator observes what power was to Saul, money was to Nabal. He was corrupted by his love of money. It had become his idol, his God, the most important thing in his life. And his foolishness is so striking and so offensive that the name fool is given. And that fool has the biblical connotation. You might even wonder if David had this in mind if he had Nabal in mind when he wrote Psalm 14, he repeats it in Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there surely is no God. Remember what I said? Literally it is, Nabal has said in his heart, there surely is no God. Think of the context of what's happening here 
and understand Nabal's sin. Covetousness said, there is no God. And that's a striking rebuke to us, is it not? The love of money can do this to you. To lead you into what we call sometimes uh, practical atheism. By that I mean we act as if there is no God. And that's really easy when you can go to Walmart any day of the week and easily get whatever you need. The desires of your heart are just a click away. And on Amazon, you can get it tomorrow. And you'll live like there is no God. You don't need his help. You don't need to repent. You don't need his provision. You live practically like there is no God. Which is one small step from real atheism. You dismiss God and depart from anything that has to do with him and live out your life. Eat, drink, be merry. Follow your own pleasures. Here is the warning of the rich fool, the warning of Nabal. The love of money is an idol. Covetousness is sin. And it can tie your heart up quicker than you can imagine. So that you become a fool and live like there is no God. If you give room for that, you will find that you will never be satisfied. Have you ever observed, uh, I'll, use, uh, I'll use children in this case, uh, how, how children can receive a, a gift for their birthday or Christmas, and in five minutes, they're looking at what their brother or sister has. And wanting that, and despising what they have, they're never satisfied. It's not just children who do that. Or you might think that the next purchase will make you happy. It won't. It really won't. We'll just feed that hunger for something more, thinking that that's what will make you happy. That's practical atheism. That's covetousness. That's it's foolishness. In every biblical sense of that word, Listen well, learn the lesson of the rich fool, the danger of the love of money. What do you replace that with? Well, if the love of money makes your heart cold, the love of God warms your heart and opens your hands. The love of God makes you realize just just who you are and that 
what you have is all come from God. And it prompts this wonderful joy and satisfaction that comes when you say thank you. You see, thanksgiving is, is, is a profound expression of your relationship to God. The fool says there's no, no God, and he lives that way, and is miserable, bound up by the master of the money that has become, uh, has come to rule his life. But when you know who you are, that spiritually and physically that you belong to him and he has and you recognize the ways that he's been good to you, there's this overflow of saying thank you to God. That's one way to fight against the, the love of money. It's the recognition of who God is, how he has blessed you, and to nurture this, this attitude that says thank you to God. And you can do that with your money. You can do that in many ways. Today, we're focusing on money. You can go home and think of other ways to say thank you to God and show a generous heart, but our money is a measure of where our love is, where our dependence is. And you can say thank you to God with your money. Our tithe is that. Our tithe is saying to God, Lord, all that I have comes from you. And as we enjoy the prosperity that God has brought to us, we bring a gift to God to say thanks. Don't begrudge those gifts to God. Rather, celebrate them in your own heart. It's not to... Display your wealth. It's not for anybody else to see. It's a way for you to say thank you to God. By the way, it fights against this insidious sin of covetousness and the foolishness it brings. But in this context, let me make one last application. It was the practice in David's day on feast days to show generosity towards those in need. There's an offering to God. There's a generosity to those around you that has come into the New Testament and into our era as well in the concept of giving alms. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he instituted the Lord's Supper that we are celebrating today, there was an offering that was received. And those who were entrusted to go and to give that to those who were poor. That's an expression of this very concept. In the setting of recognizing the goodness of God and the Passover and the Lord's Supper, the spiritual treasure that we have in Christ is put on display, which motivates this alms offering. As the disciples did, they took that offering to be distributed to those who were in need. 
And we've taken up this practice too in connection with our feast of the Lord's Supper. We have an alms offering. It's a chance for you to think carefully about how God has richly blessed you. In the context of this feast, it's less on the, on the physical side. Harvest and shearing was more on that physical side. It's very apparent. But a deeper and more lasting and incredibly more rich feast is this feast of the Lord's Supper. God blesses you forever in Jesus Christ. We have been blessed in the heavenly regions in Christ Jesus. And in light of our gratitude for what he has done, we say thanks. Thank you, God, for that blessing. And in that context, we take up an alms offering that has in mind blessing those in need in our community, our community of faith our physical community. And so say thanks to God today as part of your worship, as part of your acknowledge of what God has done to you to save you from your sins, as part of an acknowledgement that everything that you have, everything that you are, are because of him. Say thanks in your worship And in this context, let your money express that too. Say thanks in the tithes that you give to the Lord and in the alms that you freely and joyfully give as a blessing and a bounty, an overflow of joy for what God has given to you as you give to him. Amen. Let's pray. God, we recognize what you have done for us, and we give thanks. We remember your goodness to us, both spiritually and financially. Pray, O Lord, that you would forgive us. Forgive me of my covetousness, of how tight-fisted I am and can be. O Lord, I pray that you would help me to nurture a thankful and generous heart. Forgive me for playing the fool. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to Psalm 15. We sang Psalm 14 about the fool. We sing Psalm 15 about entering into God's presence and describes that one who resides in the Lord's presence and uh, it describes him freely giving and lending. Uh, That's an expression of, of the righteous man whose heart is cleansed by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's stand and sing Psalm 15, Selection A.